1: Hello. This week I'm talking to Paul Burston, author and host of the queer literary salon Polari. I actually had sex
2: with somebody once waiting for
1: a night bus in Trafalgar Square. (laughs) Yeah. You're listening to Probably True. Please be aware that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It would be boring without them.
2: Well, it was 1988, so I would have been 22, I think. I'd finished university and i devoted myself basically to being a full-time scene queen. <laughs> and I was having a lot of fun, a great lot of fun. There wasn't really a lot of drugs around, that I was, not that I was aware of anyway. People would go out and just get drunk on beer or steal beer. <laughs> In my case, sometimes I would somebody, <laughs> oh, I've got, I've got that pint over there. Wow! So, yeah, <laughs> there wasn't that kind of like glass-fronted we're happy to be seen it was all quite so behind dark windows and yeah it was like ultra ultraviolet lights everywhere and so you could see everyone's dandruff on their shoulders <laughs> yeah and there was a big video screen which in those days was a novelty to have a video screen in a bar and you could pay money to choose videos which of course you, know, you didn't have control of videos in those days to so b- b- watch pop whenever you wanted to and i remember they used to always have um don't leave me this way by bronze cb that was always on whenever you went into harpoon louis that was on and there was "I Want to Dance with Somebody" by Whitney Houston. Um, that they, they take me back to those to that place. There were different sort of tribes within that as well. So you know, you, you that look you had that kind of, Frankie Houston Hollywood look, which that was pretty much, that that was pretty much Saturday Night at Heaven. That was, it was <laughs> the kind of men only night at Heaven, which um, I actually came out by going to Heaven. That's how I came out. I didn't tell anybody. I just went to Heaven on my own, and stood outside. And so I, I knew that I knew there was this gay club called Heaven because everyone knew that, and I'd seen something in Time Out magazine i think it was um and i went along and stood outside i had this spiked up hair like sort of friend like ian mcculloch from echo and the bunny man i had plucked eyebrows and makeup and i think two earrings in each ear and i may have had nose stud as well and i stood outside for about two hours watching these men queuing up and none of whom looked at all like me they all looked like village people and lumberjack shirts and and moustaches and I I couldn't I just couldn't go in so I sort of started chain smoking and I just went back to Waterloo got the train back to Richmond and University again but I went back the next Saturday and the next Saturday and then eventually the third week I actually plucked up the courage to go in. Getting a little bit
1: closer every time yeah.
2: And I went down those hallowed stairs and I remember the sense of this smell, which I didn't recognise it was because it was poppers. I didn't know what it was, just like Felt old, old, old socks, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you walk into this room and the first thing I heard was this guy sort of swished by saying, so many men, so little time, <laughs> which were the lyrics for a popular dance tune of the time. And I just turned and ran out again because it terrified me. And then the following week I went back and I stood literally, literally with my back against the wall. Didn't talk to anybody, stood against the wall. Look at, looking at people, I was nineteen. I was so terrified, and then eventually someone talked to me, and then that one thing led to another.
1: With that particular someone, or just generally,
2: with that with that particular oh. someone, yeah, he oh. broke broke my heart though. Oh. Of course, bastard. Yeah, bastard. It was one way to, one, one way to do it. Come out wasn't wasn't the best way, probably. <laughs> <laughs> go, to a big, go to a big huge like war on your own and be terrified.
1: <laughs> it puts me in mind of learning to swim. You start off just your feet in the water, then you've got your floaties on and yes. you're kind of bobbing about and and then you start moving around.
2: I've I've always tended to jump into things too much, so I, have, I know I kind of go to my local gay bar in Richmond. I have to go to the biggest gay <laughs> club in, in in the whole world at the time, probably. What
1: well, if you're going to do it, do it properly. It, yeah,
2: just throw, throw myself into that. Yeah, I loved. I I had many, many, many great times there. Many great times there um, over the subsequent years.
1: And were there so many men and so little time?
2: Well, there were. Yes, definitely in both senses, because we didn't realize then just how many men were going to have so little time. No, (laughs) and it all changed very, very quickly. It became quite prophetic. Really, I was making up for lost time. (laughs) I had fun. I made lots of new friends. (laughs)
1: Sure. <laughs> Even if you didn't quite know their names,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, I always knew their names. At least, at least while we were together, I'm quite choosy like that.
1: You, you're a classier yeah. bitch yeah. than
2: me. Yeah, oh. I had—I actually had sex with somebody once, waiting for a night bus into Trafalgar Square. <laughs> yeah, actually, in the night, in the queue for the night bus. Oh wow! Yeah. Like, in the queue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. By the National Gallery.
1: Was no one else in the queue tempted to join in? Or? <laughs> <laughs> offer, a, offer some kind
2: of but waiting for the night bus in De Valga Square in those days was a real hotbed of activity. Everyone would come from Heaven or Soho in the middle of the week, and there'd just be so many gay guys queuing for the night bus in De Valga Square. Honestly, so many people I know from that period have got similar stories of just like getting on the different night bus because you fancied somebody and finding this, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly finding out you're in East London and you live in Richmond or vice versa. <laughs> just cause there was a, there was a hottie on the bus, Aww. yeah
1: and hoping that they'd give you somewhere to stay yeah. <laughs> for the night.
2: They usually did out of charity. <laughs> for me, part of the fun of those of that period of my life was that you'd go out and you'd meet people and you'd, you'd meet people that you wouldn't normally meet. You'd meet a cross-section of people. I had friends all different ages, all different backgrounds and sexualities and genders, and I think it became much more fragmented later, and I think that the success, it became a victim of, of its own success in a way because there wasn't the, there wasn't the connections after aids happened because that was that was a huge thing in my life when i was about eight, 25, 26 um most of my gay male friends at that point were some years older than me because i was I, I wanted to learn i wanted to be, i wanted someone to sort of be my older brother and teach me and show me the ropes and stuff mm. and they were the ones that all died so i lost all of them pretty much and then i became an aids activist and got really involved in all of that and the, for all of the for all of the things that i would not change for anything well, you know there, there were a lot of things about the 80s i would never want to have back Um, But there was a sense of community and people did pull together and they did rally. And there was was communication between different generations and different tribes within within our communities. And nowadays, I'm not sure if that's true anymore. I think that there was a break in the chain because there was a generation that was kind of lost to HIV and AIDS. There was um, the generation that were impacted by it, like my generation, who went through an awful lot of grief in a very short space of time, which was very traumatic. And I'm probably not really over it yet, to be honest. It's probably still in there to some degree. And then it becomes a very difficult subject to talk about, so you don't talk about it very often. And then the younger kids are coming along, and they've got, they, they don't know how half of this stuff even happens. They never know their history half the time when you talk to young people. They have no idea what, what was going on 10, 15 years before they were... Because why would you? No. you know, I, I didn't when I was that young either. I think I was, must have been about 22 when I first heard about it. My boyfriend at the time read something in one of the gay papers and said, oh, we have to start wearing, using condoms. And I was like, what? And then I'd heard that someone I was at college with who was a mature student, and he disappeared for a long period. He didn't come back after this term. I then learned on the grapevine that he was gay, that he had this boyfriend who was American. They basically both contracted HIV, and he died really really rapidly. I, didn't, I wasn't friends with him, really. I didn't know him. I just, I just knew him to say hi to, really. And he was the first person, that was the first person that I knew of, and then the guy I was living in the, in the tower block with, um, who I was very close to, and who was a real mentor of mine, I moved out and I went to see him one night and uh, he was, he was odd. Something was odd about it. The whole evening was very strange and strained. And I remember asking him, well, how he he said seeing somebody recently, this new boyfriend. And I saw how things going with the boyfriend. And he said, Oh, um, well, it's a bit difficult because, you know, he's, he's, he's upset because, you know, I don't, I don't want to have sex now that I'm actually positive. And that was how he, that was how he told me. And I just had to put this brave face on and just, get through this conversation I was absolutely shocked and devastated <laughs> because at that in, in that back then that meant a death sentence there was no, there was no treatment and I remember sort of sitting through this dinner, feeling absolutely awful, and then getting home on the train and just crying the whole journey home. And he became really ill really quickly. And then he was, uh, he wanted, one of his dying wishes was he wanted to go to Amsterdam. He'd never been to Amsterdam. And his friends, most of them were straight women, elected me to be the person to take him. And I went, I took him to Amsterdam on this trip and I spent the whole time what, thinking he was going to die on me. And how was I going to manage to get him? What, what, what would I do? I was 24 years of age, 25 years of age. <laughs> It was horrendous. It was very frightening. When he was in hospital, I used to go and visit him and I'd be, I'd be helping with things. And I remember one time picking up this urine bottle on the, off the bed and tipping, actually tipping it on myself and being paranoid. Even though I knew deep down that this was not something that was going to pose any risk to me, we didn't really know. People didn't really know much. There wasn't much information. And this is before Lady Diana went into the AIDS ward and this is before all this sort of stuff happened. It was, it was still a period where it was not really spoken about. If it was, it was spoken about in hushed voices and... Um, it was a very frightening time, and he was a very, very good community-minded person. He he was involved in the running of the building, and everyone knew who he was. He would chair meetings and whatever. And then after he got ill, people, someone daubed on his front door, House of AIDS, on his front door. <laughs> 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 Fucking hell. And then he died, and um, I was really in the state about it. And uh, I read in one of the papers that there was a meeting happening at the London Lesbian and Gay Centre in Cowcross Street in Farringdon was no no longer there, but it was a very popular place back then. And there was a meeting happening and it was Act Up. And I I I knew what Act Up was already happening in America. So I knew I knew what Act Up was. I went on to this meeting, I just threw myself into it. And it took over my life completely for like three years. And it was a way of sort of channeling the grief because in the over over those three years it was just one funeral after another. It was just you got to the point where you'd actually dread answering the phone, and I mean, I, I, I used to have file filofax then because the, everyone had a file of facts back in the eighties. And I remember every year just like taking all the names out, taking mm-hmm. the different people out because people just die all the time. Even my family, I mean, they love them to bits, but they just they just did not understand why this was any different to my grandfather dying. It's like because that's expected because he's fucking eighty and he's mm-hmm. and he smokes and he's ill and. These men shouldn't be dying in their late twenties, early thirties. It's just, it's completely mad. It was it was like there was a war going on, but only we knew about it. It was like the wider world was completely oblivious, and yet within our world, which was a very very contained gay London world, there was a war going on, and people were dying all around us, and we were expected to carry on as normal. Well, you how the fuck do you do that? How the fuck do you carry on as normal when when people are dying? There's no no way to stop it, and you might be next because there's, there's always that anxiety you're going to be next. So there was a long time where nobody. I didn't get tested for ages. I was terrified. I didn't want to be told that I had it at that time. What was the point? You're going to die. Mm. <laughs> so it just avo- I, I avoided it until, until there was uh, treatment available. It was a very frightening time. It was, one felt very isolated and suddenly very aware of your own mortality at an age when you shouldn't be. Suddenly being, being 25 and suddenly be dealing with death on a, on a, on a, on a massive scale is, is shocking. It's like being in a war. It's all I can th- compare it to, really. But out of it there came some good stuff because it made us very visible, um, not in a very good way necessarily, but it made us very visible. It galvanized people because you were literally fighting for your life. So what the fuck did you have to lose? Actor was a very, very empowering thing to do for me and for the people involved, many of whom were people with HIV or AIDS or people like me who had friends who were were ill or died. And it was a way of channeling all of that grief and doing something constructive with it and feeling like you were making a difference by raising awareness. And And also having great fun, because there's a great buzz about being a direct action activist, you know, storming buildings and blocking traffic and scaling walls of prisons and throwing condoms over them and things like that. I mean, there were lots of great buzzes. There's a buzz to do that, you know. The meetings weren't such a buzz. They (laughs) They were quite boring and long, but the actual actions were great. And I wasn't afraid of arrest or anything So I, I didn't I didn't really have anything to lose. I didn't have a proper career so I, I wasn't worried about losing a job or anything. I just worked casual work. Other people involved in active couldn't do that because they had jobs that they had to, had to protect but I, I was happy to do it. So I was, I was, I was in the action committee so I was, getting, I was getting arrested all the time. I mean I literally had... <laughs> and back then of course there was no communication between police divisions so if you got arrested say in Trafalgar Square and you got taken to Bow Street Court and given a, um, a bind over to keep the peace blah 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 you could then go off and Get arrested in a different area of London and get get another bindover over because they wouldn't know you already had one. So at one point I had about six bindovers. It was like it was almost like a badge of honor how many bindovers you had at one point, you know. Just put them on
1: the fridge. <laughs> yeah. <Aww. laughs>
2: it was cool.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At
1: BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com
0: for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
2: Looking back on it now, because of the benefit of hindsight and, and you know, of having read more and, and, and learned more, it's... You realise how precious that time was because you you had sort of the Stonewall riots in '69, and you had like the '70s, and then by the end of the '70s it was like bam, because AIDS hit in '81 in in America. So you literally had a decade of gay gay freedom, and then you had bam, and then and all went really, really like shocking. You never would imagine that. On the back of that, we had several setbacks because then you had the fact that AIDS had happened, and the the way the press was reporting it, you know, was that we were all swirling in a cesspit of our own making was one of the phrases that was used. And so there was an awful lot of right-wing hysteria and, back, and backlash against anything to do with gay positive rights or images. Um, Section 28 happened, which was the first anti-gay legislation to be introduced in like hundreds of years. I, I think this. I think people have this naive belief, and I certainly had it, that progress just happens automatically, just slowly things get better. I'm not sure that's actually true. I think things go in circles and, and sometimes things swing back the other way. Um, and that was a real that was a real wake-up call. You know, AIDS and then Section 28 was just such a huge wake-up call. I don't see how you can live through that and not be politicised by it. I can't see how on earth you would live through it. And I, so I became a very political animal. And anyone, anyone who wasn't basically got bored of listening to me rant on about it. So <laughs> I stopped seeing those people. They just they stopped inviting me for dinner parties, you know. <laughs> Paul's great family he's a bit of a bore at the moment. He just bangs on about bloody actor. So I didn't see people apart from people within that world. And I spent lots of time with people that were, living and breathing act up all the time i did get burnt out in the end because you do get burnt out because it, you can't do that for very long it's very consuming and i had a very good friend that i met to act up called spud who i loved so dearly and then he died and then i just when he when he when he died i, I couldn't face it anymore I, I had to i had to leave then i was like no i can't do this without him there it's too much for me so yeah
1: were there moments when you thought why bother were there any kind of hopeless moments? In- oh yeah,
2: I mean, <laughs> the thing as well is that you know ACT was not universally loved by the gay community. We were not seen as being diplomatic. There's always been that thing between the good gays and the bad gays. So you've got the Stonewall group doing all the kind of lobbying and being nice and talking to politicians, and you've got outrage and Peter Tatchell causing causing a ruck. That was we were in that camp, obviously.
1: So and Professor X versus Magneto. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
2: and there was a, there was a lot of hostility to us. And when you're sort of putting your whole life into something, and then you're constantly being discredited and, and slagged off in the press, as we were repeatedly, it did make you feel like giving up. I remember one particular meeting that there was there had been rumours that active had been taken over by far left entryists or something, which wasn't true at all, but. Certain people wanted to believe that as a way of discrediting us and there was this long meeting at the centre on a Friday night, it went on for hours and the press were there and I remember one gay journalist from one of the papers which remained nameless, making this big speech, just tearing us to pieces and I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm done here, I can't. why Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And just being so upset and then I used to write for a paper called Capital Gay and the, the, the proprietor, Michael Mason, was there. I went crying to him after the meeting in the bar upstairs and I was like, I'm, I'm giving up, I'm giving up, I'm just leaving, I can't do this anymore... And he said to me, "Don't just just go home and think about it." And I'm really glad he said that because I was going to just resign. I mean, not 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 the one who had a formal position at active. He <laughs> just you just turned up and just threw yourself in and left. But um, you know, I was going to announce. I was I, was, I was very dramatic. I'm going to announce my resignation. I'm not. I can't flounce. Do yeah, I'm going to fla- I was going to flounce. I was going to flounce off. And I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't. But yeah, there were times when you think, why why are we doing this? Um, Often during the meetings, actually,
1: because sometimes,
2: <laughs> sometimes the meetings would go on very long and, and people would be sort of debating the finer points of this and the finer points of that and, and bickering and falling out over the choice of a word or the wrong word or this word or that word. And it became like, this is not what we're here for. You know, I remember this one meeting where people were arguing. We, we had an action that at that weekend People were spending so many hours, when we should have been getting the placards and everything ready. And so me and a few guys just started doing it in the middle of the meeting, just got down on the floor and started painting placards while everyone else was rowing. Just get on with it. I mean, our slogan was action equals life, which was a kind of in, the inverse of act of New York, which was silence equals death. We felt that that was too nihilistic, I suppose. So action equals life was our motto. And I, kind of, I, I still believe that. I still think if you're, feeling, if you're feeling down to us do something. If, you know, if, if your writing isn't going well, go for a walk. You know, action does literally equal life. It does literally make you feel much better. So being an activist did give me a sort of life force that wasn't there otherwise. But there were times when it was hard to hang on to that. Definitely, yeah. I feel like I was very young. I was very young for my age because I was very naive and and very inexperienced in lots of ways. And I had quite a sort of rapid growing up, which was when AIDS happened. I grew up very quickly in a very short space of time. And I think... The thing that I learned was that it sounds pat, but it's so true, which is that, you know, you, you never know how long you've got. You never know. You, you, you could get knocked down by a bus tomorrow. You could, you, you, I could get a brain tumour tomorrow. You never know what's going to happen to you. And I just think if you have dreams and ambitions, try and do something with them. I, I meet people all the time. Who are saying, oh, we, "Oh, I've always wanted to write a novel. Well, write it then. It's not going to write itself. You have to write it. And oh, But it's really hard. Yes, it is hard. That's that's why all writers will tell you it's hard. <laughs> Every writer I know, when they're about two thirds of the novel, they hate everything that they've written. And it's the worst novel ever been written. It's never going to get published. That's called a first draft and you'll fix it later on. Just don't keep putting things off because it's not going to be perfect. Don't wait until all the circumstances are right, because they may never be right. Just do the best you can do now. and But do it now. Live in the moment and make the most of the moment and don't let it just become the past there's so many things i wish i'd done when i was younger so many things i wish i'd done and and i tried to make up for as i got older i think you regret the things you didn't do more than the things that you did do that's that's certainly been my experience and if there are things that you're you have ambitions or dreams then do something about it just do something you try and if you fail fine try again fail again fail better next time and, and eventually you'll get there but don't just use fear of, of failure to stop you from even trying. There's so many people in life do that, and they end up doing things that they hate doing, and then they wake up when they're 55 or 60 thinking, what on earth have I wasted my life on? I've pretty much done what I want to do most of my life in terms of work, and it isn't easy, and, and sometimes it's difficult to make ends meet, and sometimes you need support from other people, and sometimes you, you, know, you wish you had more money to do more things, and, but you're doing what you love doing, and I don't think there's anything more rewarding than that, really. My first ever gay flatmate was what we now call a yuppie in those days. Very nice guy. Worked for a television company. Had a huge fuck-off salary. Big, splashy car. Hated his job. Absolutely hated his job. And he would just live for the weekend when he could go out and get absolutely trolleyed to get away from his work. And, I know, and I, I know people who live like that now, and I, I couldn't live like that. If it means that you, that you can't afford to do all the things you'd like to do, well, sometimes that's worth it. Sometimes you need to find a balance where... What's good for you as a person is more more important than having five holidays a year or whatever it might whatever it might be that you spend money on. <laughs> Choosing my career path will not necessarily bring you fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing something that you love, and I think most creative people understand that, you know, if you're if you're a creative person, you, you understand that you just have to do it. If you don't do it, you feel out of sorts. You know, if, if I if I have a week where I don't write anything, I get really, really unhappy. It really affects my mental health. I feel really low and I have to do it. So make the time and, and, and treat it as if it, treat it seriously. Get, give it the time that it needs. And if that means you need to fit it in around another job, then fine, do that. We've all done that. But make time to do the thing that you love because no one's going to do it for you. <laughs> you just have to, you have to do it yourself and you have to give it enough respect and treat it with enough value and, and, and decide for yourself that it's worth doing. What an awful waste to go through life and not having done the thing that you were that you were probably sent here to do. Mm-hmm. You were probably born to do. I and mean, Maybe, the, maybe the, that changes. My husband was a ballet dancer for most of his life. And if you know anything about ballet dancers, that, that that is a real vocation. They spend their entire time training and in class and everything and rehearsing, often for very little reward. And oh, and also their career is over when they're 40. So he's now got a second career as a Pilates teacher and he's doing rerun and he's fantastic at it. And he's now found another vocation. So I'm not saying that the vocation I'm talking about will be the same one all your life, but Whatever stage you're at in your life, if there's something that you're dying to do, just do it. Really, do it. Don't sit there and look back when you're 60 and wish you had. It's,
1: like, it's such a sad waste. Have you considered a, a future career as a motivational speaker?
0: <laughs> I would pay to sit and listen to a talk like this. It's lovely.
1: If you want to know more about Paul, his books and the Literary Salon Polari, there's plenty of information online. Twitter is just at Paul Burston. They can find out about Polari by
2: going to our website, which is www.polarisalon.com. Well, I've got a new novel just come out, which is called The Closer I Get, which is about it's a psychological thriller. And it's about a gay novelist with writer's block and an online admirer, woman, um, who we meet at a book signing. And it's about the relationship between them. Nothing is quite as it seems. So it's, it's ostensibly about a man being stalked by
1: somebody. But there's a bit more to it than that. And that's it for this week. If you need me, I'll be at the bus stop. No reason. That was probably true the multi-award winning storytelling series written and produced by me the multi-award winning Scott Fleshheart it was designed to remind all of my queer siblings that we are none of us alone you can find links, transcripts of every episode and all that good stuff at probablytruepodcast.com if you enjoyed or found value in anything you've heard today you can support the show on Patreon just go to patreon.com slash probablytrue and if you want to get in touch just search Probably True podcast on the socials and now it's time for some Patreon compliments. First up is Dr. Brinley Pearlstone, who is just as exciting and charismatic as you'd expect for someone whose name sounds like it's come straight out of an Indiana Jones film. The second compliment this week goes to Peter the Enigmatic, who didn't give a surname, as he enjoys the air of mystique that comes with keeping people guessing. As always, you can get your very own Patreon compliment and support the show in the process by going to patreon.com forward slash probably true.